0: Today is Palm Sunday, today is the day of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, where he is praised and greeted with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the things that is hard for me to to totally wrap my mind around is the human experience of Jesus I think often about the divinity of Jesus, but I often neglect the humanity of Jesus and that he was totally and completely a human. Imagine for a moment, one of the most celebrated days you've ever had. Maybe it's a birthday, maybe it was a wedding, a graduation, something like that. Now, imagine only five days later, all of those same people who celebrated you with the exception of a few are now calling for your arrest and execution. I can't imagine the type of emotional toll that must take on somebody. It's an absolutely mind-boggling shift for for me to even think about, to go to those extremes in such a, a short amount of time. I can't imagine what Jesus must have felt in that expanse of just a few days from the triumphal entry coming into Holy Week. And then what we've been focusing on is his last meal with his disciples. And this Holy Week is a very busy time. Here are a few things that happen throughout Holy Week in Scripture. Holy Week, we see the cleansing of the temple This is all happening after Jesus comes into Jerusalem today on Palm Sunday. We see the cleansing of the temple. Um, One of these things is that debate about paying taxes to Caesar. We see Jesus cursing the fig tree for not having any fruit. We see the Olivet Discourses, which includes teachings of the final judgment and the end times. And then finally, leading up to Thursday and the Last Supper with his disciples. It's a week full of teaching and spending time in the temple. And for us throughout Lent, we've been in John 13 to 17, which is known as the last discourse or the upper room discourse. It's Jesus' final messages to his disciples. John spends several chapters here, and this is the longest teaching of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. John's book reads differently than the other gospels. And especially this section, this section reads more like a friend giving words of advice and words of encouragement to, to his closest friends. It's less didactic. It's less like a teaching and more just like an overflow of Jesus's love for his disciples. And so John is slowing us down and he's bringing us into the moment of this room from the hectic time of the week of Holy Week to now Thursday with the Last Supper. And he's slowing us down. This is what Eugene Peterson says about this. John is slowing us down. John is quieting us down. John is asking us to shut up and listen. John is telling us to turn off our cell phones, stow our Palm Pilots, and pay attention to the story that we think we know so well. John is inviting us into the company of Jesus for a time of spiritual formation. John is getting us ready for resurrection and Pentecost. I love that mostly because it references Palm Pilots. So if you are on your Palm Pilot right now, please put that away. Um, but John has created this intimate scene with Jesus. And it's a time of spiritual formation. It's a time where Jesus is getting us ready for his resurrection and getting his disciples ready for that as well. And getting them ready for Pentecost. We talked a couple of weeks ago about 26 times throughout this this upper room time Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and he's talking about how he is leaving but he's sending the Holy Spirit he's preparing them for for Pentecost and what we want to focus on today is John 17 this is considered the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples and then he goes on to pray for all believers Uh, the passage will be on the screen and would you read this with me together let us read My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me John 17, 15 to 23. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. Quickly, we can see Jesus's care and concern for his disciples. He prays that they will not be taken out of the world but that they will be protected from the evil one. It's as if up until this point, Jesus has felt like that he's been able to guide and protect his disciples. But as he is going away, this will no longer be the case. He's prepared them for the Holy Spirit coming to be a guide and a comforter. And now he's praying for them to be protected. Notice that it's, it's not to be protected from harm or to be taken out of the world, as he says, but it's to be protected from the evil one. Jesus says that his followers are, are not of this world. And this literally means that they are not from the world. The world is not their identity or their origin. And when Jesus is talking about the world, specifically how John uses it in his book, he isn't meaning the world of like a, a physical creation or the earth, but he, he means it as the world of which is set against God. So here's N.T. Wright explaining this idea a little bit more. When Jesus in John's Gospels says the world, he doesn't mean the world of creation. John's gospel is all about God's love for the world, and its climax is in the new creation of resurrection, the redemption of the created order. No, when he says the world, rather like St. Paul with the word flesh, he means the world as it organizes itself against God. The world is what is out there when people try to run their lives as though God didn't exist which is why there is solid and settled hatred. The world is hardly too strong. This is why when John gives us a verse earlier in the gospel that's so powerful, for God so loved the world, that even as the world is organized itself against him, he gave his only son. The world is when people try to run their lives as though God didn't exist. And so Jesus is explaining that his disciples are not from this world. It's not how they find their identity. Thinking back to John 15, their identity is now abiding in the life and the love of Jesus. It's a union and a unity that they experience in Christ. As Jesus progresses in in verse 20, we we see the shift of him moving from his disciples to now praying for all believers. And this is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so now we see Jesus praying for those who believe he's praying for you. And he's praying for me. We have believed this message and his prayer is the way. And his prayer is that we would be one, not only that we are one, but that we are unified, but that we are in one in such a way that is like Jesus and God, the father, as they are joined together. This is like a wild and lofty prayer. Imagine Jesus praying this. He's, he's praying that we would be so unified with one another that our unity resembles the relationship that he has with his father. And Jesus goes on to pray even more bold and incredible things. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me. And even as you have loved me. And so Jesus continues with this amazing prayer of this glory that has been given to him is now a glory that we have. And honestly, I don't totally understand what that even means or look like, but we have been given this glory so that we may be brought to complete unity and that the world will know that the validity of Jesus and who he is and his claims are real because of the unity that we as followers of Jesus exhibit to one another. So what exactly is unity? What does it look like? What does it not look like? The first thing I wanna say is, is unity is not surface level. Oftentimes when I hear people talk about unity, it it feels a little bit cheap. It feels like a show or an appearance to make people think that we are aligned and that we are together, that we maybe present a unified front where we are for one another, but beneath the surface, there's contention and disagreement and hatred towards one another. You'll find that they're actually not unified at all. They don't align on anything. It's merely a show or an appearance. Unity is merely surface level. The second thing is, I don't think unity ignores the past. And here's what I mean by that. In order to move forward and have unity, at certain points, we must acknowledge things, painful things that have happened in the past. Imagine getting into an argument with a spouse or a friend or a roommate. And this argument was so intense that you spent a couple days apart, you didn't wanna talk to each other. And then all of a sudden, two days later, you come back together and, and you just continue on like nothing happened. That's not unity. That ignores the hurt and the pain of the past. And unity doesn't do that. Whether we're talking about things that need to be reconciled and repaired, whether that's on a personal level, whether that's on a national level, whatever that might be, unity does not ignore the pain of the past. Whether it's been a contentious political season, whether it's looking at how racism has totally ripped us apart time and time again, those are things that are not to be ignored. We can't just push those aside and just push forward and say, well, now we need to be unified. Unity doesn't ignore the past. Unity looks to reconcile and to repair things that have been broken. And the last thing is unity is not uniformity. Often when I hear people talk about unity, I think they actually mean uniformity. Their hope is that their beliefs, their ideas, their lifestyle will will simply be duplicated in the people around them we're unified because we all want the same things or we believe the same things or we look the same way. We have the same lifestyle or the same skin color or same culture. This is not true unity either. I don't think because this is just uniformity where we all look like each other. One of my favorite things every summer is a bike race called the tour de France. First, I'm not telling a running story, but it is a cycling story. It's called the Tour de France. And if you're unfamiliar with cycling, that is okay. It's one of my most favorite things to to watch. I would contend it's the greatest team sport on the planet. Okay, so in this picture, what you'll see you'll see a few of these guys that are in blue and yellow and red and white on the front line. But these guys, these six guys right here, they're all on the same team. Okay. And then you can see behind them, there's this red team. And again, they're all on the same team. But within each team, they have one rider that they designate to be basically the best and strongest rider, the rider that that they think could win either an individual stage or or an overall race like the Tour de France. The Tour de France takes place over 21 days. So it, it takes place over multiple stages. And so each team chooses one rider that they think is the best rider. Okay. And then the rest of the team, their sole job is to care for this rider. So in this picture here, you see the guy in the yellow Jersey, He is this riders, this team's best rider. They're called the GC, the general, general classification rider. So every team has a GC rider. And then the rest of the team, their whole goal is to support this rider to come together so that this rider can win. So as they're going up a climb, this rider will ride behind others so that he has to expend less energy. He gets caught in their draft. And so he is expending less energy going up steep climbs so that when they get to the top of the climb or the end of the race, he is fresh so that he can win the race or he can add time to his advantage. It's wild for me to think about. All of these are, are professional athletes and all of these are world class riders, Yet every person on that team other than the GC rider, they have decided that they are going to be for this one rider because they believe that this rider is the best way for their team to win and for him to win. They're so unified and brought together that it doesn't matter anything else. It doesn't matter what they want or they think. They're solely together to be the best for this one person. Nothing can split them apart. And when it's working together in perfect unity, it is amazing and beautiful to watch. These guys will literally like break themselves so that their GC rider can gain time and gain advantage. And so I think unity is this, unity is a chosen togetherness. It's something that we have to choose. It's something that doesn't come easily. It's a chosen togetherness despite differences of opinion, religious beliefs, political ideologies, or differences in culture and ethnicity. It's something that we have to choose. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't just magically happen. This is why Jesus is praying for it here, I think, because he knows how challenging it is. It requires work and sacrifice. It requires love. It involves diversity and disagreements. To disagree on something does not mean that we are bad or necessarily in the wrong, but that we can disagree and still be unified. This is why throughout Jesus' teaching, he keeps coming back to love one another because in love, there is this unity. And in love, this unity is modeled after the unity and the union that we see between father and son and father and son and Holy Spirit. And that's the unity that Jesus is praying that we would have. And T. Wright goes on to explain it as this, Unity doesn't mean a shrug of the shoulders, a who cares fellowship, where as long as we drink coffee together, nothing else much matters. The unity for which Jesus prayed, the unity for which you must work, the unity of which St. Paul spoke in our epistle. This unity is nothing less than the unity between Jesus himself and the Father that extraordinary unity into which, to our own surprise and alarm, we are invited to come and make our home. The unity between the Father and the Son, that is the unity of which we are invited to come and to make our home. This is, I would contend, a wild invitation for us the most compelling thing we can do to the world around us for those who do not believe in Jesus is to be unified with one another. Think about that for the moment. The most compelling thing that we can do for the world around us is to be unified with one another. So much so that our union is the same as that of Jesus with God the Father. That we may be one so that the world may believe. That's Jesus's prayer, that we would be one so that the world may believe. Think about that for a moment as he's praying for his disciples, as he's praying for us. He isn't praying that we will have the best apologetics in the world and that's how the world will believe. He isn't praying that we would have the best theology. So that is how the world believes. He doesn't pray that we will have amazing programs or worship services that will draw people. No, he's praying that we will have unity with one another. And it's not hard to look around and to see that there is not much unity in the world, but also within Christians. This is why I believe that we have much to confess as Christians. We're not unified with one another. The thing that I I love about our church, the thing that I love about you guys is I have seen the care that you exhibit for one another as hard as the last year or so has been of being dispersed and not being in each other's lives. There's still times where we are exhibiting this love and this care for one another, a unity, a chosen togetherness. And after the last two weeks of shootings and one that is very close to home, just a few miles from here, it feels like the world continues to to just rip itself apart. And we're in desperate need of people who can sow peace, of people who can sow unity with one another. Again, this is not to ignore the pain and the brokenness that's happening. That very much needs time to be given voice and attention. But we need peacemakers. We need people who are willing to go and to love one another and to love despite differences in religion or politics despite differences in culture and ethnicity, whatever the differences might be, a humility to go, a Christ-likeness to, to bend down and to wash the feet of others. One of my favorite prayers that I've come across over the last couple of years is a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. And to close, before we do the prayer I examine, uh, we will pray this together So will you pray with me? Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.